So we're in part uh, three of a brand new series that we creatively named Brand New. How about that? And if you missed the, the first two parts, you need to go back and watch them. You're sort of coming in on the, in the middle of a five-part movie, okay? So part, we're right in the middle, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. But if you go to brandnewseries.org, you can see the first two. You can see all of these. They'll be up there as long as you have electricity and there's an internet. If you are in a small group, you can download a PDF, and actually dis- we have some, dis- some discussion questions we've created for you. You can discuss this content in your small group. I'd love for you to wrestle with it as we move through it because some of this is just a little bit different. Now, here's something we all know. Religion, religion, religion is such a powerful, powerful thing. And because religion is so powerful, religion can also be very dangerous. And oftentimes, as you know, religion ends up in the hands of a very few group of people, generally men, Religion, the, one of the reasons that makes it, one of the reasons it's so powerful and dangerous is because it's often fueled by superstition and fear. But perhaps the thing that makes religion so powerful is that it is anchored in our conscience. It's anchored in our conscience, and our conscience so often drives our behavior, and our conscience can be uh, you know, connected to truth, but our conscience can also be connected to error. And as we said last week, our consciences actually determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. Now, all of us have experienced this. There are things that you used to feel religiously guilty about that you don't feel guilty about anymore. There are things you currently feel guilty about because of your current, you know, where you are in terms of your religious journey that in the past you didn't feel guilty about. In our country, we have seen, seen extraordinary changes in national conscience as our nation has moved one direction or the other. That ultimately, though, for those of us who are Christians or those of us that grew up in the United States or even in the West, our consciences, whether you're aware of it or not, have been shaped by a version of Christianity, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian or a religious person. To some degree, your conscience, our consciences have been shaped by a version of Christianity, a type of Christianity that is a combination of both what Jesus actually taught and what the temple model, as we've described in this series, has actually taught us as well. And all of us, our consciences have been fine-tuned to where we feel the way we do toward God, we feel the way we do toward sin, we feel the way that we do toward one another because of essentially what we've been taught. Whoever controls your conscience ultimately controls your behavior. So what we're trying to do in this series is to kind of tease out and to separate out the movement that Jesus began and what we've referred to as the temple model. Now, when I say temple model, I'm not specifically talking about the Jewish temple, although it includes that. The temple model is essentially a template for religion that goes all the way back further than the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, certainly the Jews, um, the mud hut um, regions of the world today where you find witch doctors and in other areas of the world where there is still this template in place. The temple model looks like this. There are always sacred places. There are always sacred texts, oracles, inscriptions, documents, you know, religious texts. Sacred men, it's always men, isn't it? Along with sincere followers, or in some cases you might say superstitious followers, or scared followers, or scarred followers. But there's always a group of people that are dependent upon the words and the teachings of a certain group of men to understand where they stand with God. That these men stand at the gates of heaven and hell and determine who goes where. And our consciences are fine-tuned to that teaching. It's why some of you have abandoned religion once and for all and have walked away from all religion because you're sort of on to it. You see through it and consequently you want to have nothing to do with it. 
And there's great news for you. When Jesus Christ showed up on the planet, he launched something absolutely brand new. It was not Temple 201 or 301. It was not a knockoff of the Jewish religion. It wasn't something that was, you know, sort of a version of something that had ever happened before. That Jesus said, I have come to do something entirely new. And whereas the temple model is always geographically specific, every nation had their own version of the temple. Every nation had their own version of a religion that looked a lot like their neighbor's religions. Jesus said, I have come to launch something that is for all people of all nations for all time. He established a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and man. He established, he gave a new command. He said, every temple system has lots and lots and lots of laws. I want to give you one command. And this one command is to be the filter through which you view all other commands. This one command is going to serve for you as an ethic through which you make all your decisions. When you aren't sure what to do, you ask, what does love require of you? When you aren't sure what to do, you stop and pause and you ask the question, what does love require of you? And he launched a new movement. He said, I'm going to establish a new ecclesia, a new gathering, a new congregation. And unfortunately, instead of the word simply being translated to gathering or assembly or congregation, a German word was stuck into our English text, a German word that meant house of the Lord. But Jesus didn't come to establish a place. To the contrary, Jesus came to establish a brand new movement of people that was for all people, all ethnic groups, all nations, all generations, forever and forever. A a movement where love would replace law-keeping, where self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice, where the vertical, the vertical would be measured by the integrity of the horizontal Jesus would say to his followers, if you are at the temple and you have something that's wrong between you and God, but you recognize that you also have something wrong between you and your brother, God can wait. Go make things right with your brother. This was unheard of because this was something brand new. The apostle Paul came along after Jesus. The apostle Paul was a product of the temple. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. The apostle Paul steps onto the pages of history as someone committed to stamping out the church. He was a type A personality. He took things to the extreme and he didn't wait around for everybody else to join him. And on the road to Damascus, as he was going to arrest some more Christians, he met the one who instigated the church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the apostle Paul became a convert to Christianity, a spokesperson for Christianity. And he, more than anyone else, understood this, that you dare not mix the old with the new. Because a little bit of temple thinking, a little bit of temple model thinking mixed with this new thing, this new ecclesia, this new Jesus movement would have the potential to ruin it. A little bit of the wrong thing could impact the entire thing. And in his, in his letter to the Galatians, to this, this Roman area that we call Galatia, he wrote a verse last week that we camped out on that is unthinkable in terms of the implications. Here's what he said. He said, the only thing that counts, now this is a Hebrew scholar, this is someone that had memorized the Torah. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, specifically love towards other people. This was a brand new thing. In the South, we would say it's a whole nother thing. And he didn't stop there. The Apostle Paul said something that if you grew up in church, you've heard a dozen or hundreds of times. 
He said this, and again, for people who, he wrote this, this was in a letter to the um, Christians who lived in Corinth. They were both Jewish and Gentile. The Jewish um, believers in Corinth would from time to time make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go up on the temple mount in order to worship there on the mountain of God. The pagan Gentiles who were becoming Christians would simply go down the street to their temples to worship their pagan gods as they tried to figure out how to transition from paganism to Christianity. And to that group, the apostle Paul had the audacity to write. He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples? What? Your bodies are temples? Wait, no, a temple is a place I go. Paul said that was the old way of thinking. That was the old version. That was the temple model. Jesus has done done something entirely new. You are as sacred as any piece of dirt you have ever placed your foot on. You will never go anywhere more sacred than you are or the person to your left or to your right. You are a portable temple. How can I be a portable temple? He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit to which the Jews would say, wait a minute. No, the Spirit of God indwells the Holy of Holies. Paul would say, that was the old way. The new covenant has come. The holy of holies is of no significance anymore. It played its role. It was the cocoon that birthed this brand new movement. And you are as holy as the holy of holies. You are a portable temple and you are indwelt by the very same spirit of God that indwelt the temple in Jerusalem. And the Christian to your left and the Christian to your right The slave to your left, the slave owner to your right. The man in front of you, the woman behind you, the child that's running in your directions. They too are sacred in the eyes of God. This was mind-boggling, mind-blowing, brand new. Nothing about the old, moving into the new. And what's so fascinating is that the, the church got off to an extraordinary, an extraordinary start. One of the things I love to do, because I'm so, such a geek about this, is I love to read the ancient literature of what pagans said about the Christians. And there's so much of that literature around. They watched the Christians and they couldn't understand the Christians. Because the Christians would go out into the streets and take the children that had been abandoned. Because in Roman culture, if the child wasn't healthy, if it was a girl, children were abandoned all the time. And the children would bring, the the Christians would bring the children in. The Christians would not only take care of their own poor, they would take care of the poor Gentiles and pagans as well. And the the pagan Roman Greek thinking culture just couldn't... They just couldn't contain the thought, couldn't imagine that these people would actually one another one another, that they would actually love one another, they would actually care for one another, they would forgive one another. But the thing that really got the world's attention is that Christians were not afraid of death because they served a resurrected Savior. And again, the Christian community began to gain traction. They had no Bible. The Gentile Christians didn't even have an Old Testament. All they had were stories of Jesus. And then 25 years or so after Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul's letters begin to circulate through the churches. But they only had copies. They only had this one and that one. There was no literature. There was no canon. There was just an extraordinary faith that was fueled by love one another. If you forget everything else, you are a portable temple gathered with other portable temples. And you put the person next to you ahead of yourself. And the church gained traction. And then something extraordinary happened. In AD 70, the Jewish temple was actually destroyed and ancient ancient Judaism came to an end. 
It was as if God had physically in the world punctuated the fact that the temple model is no more. Its purposes have been served. That they pointed toward the Messiah. They pointed toward Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the entire law can be summed up in two rules. Love God and demonstrate your love for God by your love for other people. And it was extraordinary. And people who had nothing in common found that in Christ they had everything in common. And then something else extraordinary happened. On October the 28th, in the year 312, Emperor Constantine was on his way to do battle with his co-emperor, Maxentius, to find out who would be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. And as history tells us, and as many of you learned in, in school at some point in your life, on his way, in the middle of the day, he had a vision of a cross in the sky beyond the sun, Some say he heard a voice. Some say he simply saw an inscription. But he either heard or he read this. In this sign, conquer. And he stopped and he painted crosses on some of the shields of some of his soldiers. He went to battle and he was victorious. And the Christians hailed him as a conqueror. And suddenly his faith expanded. And suddenly he began to consider the one true God of the Christians. And suddenly the Christians began to gain status in the kingdom. And in, and in, in this victory, and then the, there's all this artwork that you can find everywhere. In this, in this victory celebration, suddenly the cross became a symbol, not of crucifixion in general. The cross became a symbol of the Christian crucifixion uh, or the crucifixion of Jesus. And what was birthed, even though the phrase wouldn't be used until the 12th or 13th century, was what we now know as the Holy Roman Empire. The problem was, of course, that it was far more Roman and far more empire than it was holy. A year later, Constantine legalized, as you know, he legalized Christianity. When he did so, he poured, he poured so much money into the church. He elevated the status of the bishops and the priests. He began to build churches anywhere he heard that a martyr had died. Suddenly, he was a collector of relics. Everything he did was about elevating Christianity. He built churches. Churches didn't have to pay any taxes. So guess what? All the rich people began to dedicate their properties and their manors and their houses to God so they didn't have to pay any taxes. And the rich got richer and the rich people became Christians because it paid to follow Jesus and under the leadership of Constantine. The other thing he did was he banned crucifixion. He he gave rights to children. He actually donated money to families that would take in orphans and children. And seemingly and almost overnight, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. But the problem was, and this was no one's intent, This was no grand plan. The problem was suddenly, suddenly, Christianity became inseparable from empire. And the church leaders created their own version of the temple model with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in. Now there would be new sacred places. There would be a whole new group of sacred people that began to uh, intentionally collect all the Christian texts bind them together, chain them to the altar, and now they would determine what was taught, what wasn't taught, and how the text would be interpreted. This is no better understood than through perhaps something you heard about in school that's known as the Arian controversy. This was a theological controversy. The only reason I'm gonna tell you about it is because of where it leads that we'll get to in just a minute. But the Arian controversy was over the word begotten. It was over the question that I'm sure many of you wrestle with just about every day, 
Did Jesus become God after he was born or was he born God? Isn't this something that you talk about over dinner? But this was a really, really big deal in the fourth century. And a, and a Christian, a, a church leader from Alexandria named Arius actually believed that the Jesus' divinity was conferred on him as an adult, as some sort of a reward for his faithfulness to God. Most of the church leaders, especially Athanasius, who led the charge against um, Arius, believed that, no, Jesus was born divine. So Constantine didn't want there to be a division in this new Christian, this new holy empire, and so he called a council meeting. In fact, he hosted the meeting, paid for it himself, which meant everybody was gonna be kind and polite to the emperor. As a result of that, Athanasius was the first one to Constantine, and Constantine was no theologian, he was a king. In fact, he did everything that a king would do and everything an emperor would do, so much so that even though he claimed to be a Christian, he waited to be baptized on his deathbed just to make sure all of his sins were covered right up to the last minute. Because again, he was more emperor than he was Holy Roman Emperor. So there was, this, there was this debate, this debate, and as a result, and night, and as a result we, we've known, you've heard about the, the Nicene Creed that came out about as a result of that. And Athanasius, who, who argued persuasively that Jesus was born divine, won the debate. But after the debate, people didn't go away friends and say, well, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. Suddenly, this was a political issue. This was a financial issue. This was a big issue. And so Emperor Constantine, again, who was no theologian, put out this edict. And I want to read just this part to, to you because this explains so much in some ways of what we experience even today. Here's what he wrote. He said, and I hereby make a public, this is the end of the edict, I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. And now, theological division was heresy that was punishable by death. Suddenly, believing the wrong thing was a crime. And suddenly, in Christianity, what you believed trumped how you behave. Christianity almost immediately became creedal. You're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, or maybe you memorized a different creed as a child. The Apostles' Creed is an extraordinary piece of theology that, that states so many things that are so important to theology and to Christendom. The problem with that creed, along with other creeds, is there is no mention of love. In fact, there's no mention of behavior at all. You could subscribe to that creed and basically do anything you wanted. And there was a reason the creeds were that way is because the creeds were generally signed off on by the emperor. And the emperors had bad behaviors. So the church leaders who were being funded by the emperors had to be very careful what they put into the Christians, Christian creeds. And consequently, during this period in history, in fact, during all of history, no one was ever arrested, no one was ever persecuted, and no one was ever executed because they loved too much. It was all about what they did and didn't believe. And now you had Christians arresting Christians for believing the wrong thing. And suddenly, you had the church version, the Christian version of the temple model. Sacred men, sacred men, this new, this new group of sacred men now became the gatekeepers of heaven and hell through withholding communion, through withholding baptism with the threat of excommunication, suddenly the pope, the priests, the bishops, and the archbishops were the power. The kings and the lords and the landowners feared the pope and the priest. 
and the bishops. And then in the 11th century, as you know, the first successful crusade was launched. And Pope Urban II launched this crusade with the promise that all the crusaders' sins would be forgiven. He promised the remission of sins. And so these landowners and these, these um, knights who had lots and lots of sins to be forgiven charged off to do the first crusade and they raped and pillaged their way all the way through Europe, all the way to Constantinople, all the way to the Holy Land because after all, their sins were forgiven. But something else happened as well. It occurred to them, if we have permission to kill those who inhabit the sacred holy land and the city of Jerusalem, why not murder those who are actually responsible for the death of our Lord? And Jewish men and women and families and children were murdered throughout Europe. The spirit of anti-Semitism went to a level it had never been before in all of the world. Their, their wealth was stolen and taken by men on their way to do the will of God because after all, as the Pope said, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. And God must have willed it because when they got to Jerusalem, they were successful and they retook the city. But 100 years later, God did not will it and Saladin took it back and the crusaders never controlled the city of Jerusalem in the way that they did from the first crusade. And suddenly, suddenly, the temple model was back. It was just the Christian version sacred places, sacred men who controlled the sacred text because no one had access to the Bible. It would be interpreted the way they thought it should be interpreted. And all of a sudden, this, this movement that was to be fueled by love for one another, to be fueled by one anothering one another, almost came to a screeching halt, except for the monastic movement and some remnant of people who understood what the Jesus movement was really all about. The next big date in, this, in our story is the year 1517, which marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and others, they weren't trying to abandon the church. They just wanted to reform the church, thus the word Reformation. But those inside the church felt like they were protesting, thus the word Protestant. And so Martin Luther condemned the selling of indulgences. Martin Luther, who was a Greek scholar, understood none of what the church stands for can be found anywhere in the Gospels. Certainly their version of salvation can't be found in the Gospels. Certainly the idea that a pope or an archbishop or a bishop can control who goes into purgatory and how long they stay there None of that can be found in the Gospels. And so they began trying to reform the church. Consequently, as you probably know, Martin Luther was excommunicated, but he didn't care because he didn't believe the Pope had the power to excommunicate anyone. And within the context of the Reformation, there were several solas that came to light. The most popular one was sola fide, which simply means, as many of you know, by faith alone. And this became, became the hallmark of Protestantism, that we believe that salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. And so Martin Luther and others began to teach this. The printing press had been created. Suddenly the scriptures were being translated into English, for which William Tyndale lost his life for making the text available to people in his nation in his part of the world. The same with Martin Luther as he began to translate the Bible into Germany. He was hunted down like a criminal for making the text available, for making the Bible available to those in his, in his part of the world. The other sola that the Reformation gave us was sola scriptura. Because the reformers believe, like many of us believe, that the scripture, not the church, the scripture, not the church, was the ultimate authority for mankind. This is why they were so adamant about making copies of scripture and getting them into the hands of the people. Of course, this was a threat to the church because suddenly if everyone had the scripture and no one took the church and the traditions of the churches seriously, they would lose their power. 
Martin Luther said this. He said, a man, a simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. And without meaning to, and without understanding where this would go, suddenly in the hands of the reformers, suddenly in the hands of the Protestant church leaders, the scriptures became the very same thing that papal authority was before. It became a weapon. The reformers were armed with the scriptures, and they did exactly what the church had done before. And consequently, the Reformation splintered into three, six, a dozen, dozens, and now there are over a thousand Protestant denominations all over the world. And do you know what divided them? Because some loved better than others? Because some loved differently than others? No. It was their interpretation of a text. Because now you had more sacred places with sacred men, with sacred texts, telling everyone else how to live their lives. And specifically, what would grant them entrance into heaven? What would keep them out of hell? And Protestants have been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. And the tragedy of all of this, even though if we had lived in those times, no doubt we would have been caught up in the same ways of thinking, in the same conflict, in the same division. At the end of the day, the tragedy was that love lost. Love lost. And we simply ended up with two or three or a half a dozen different versions of the temple model with Jesus sprinkled in. Now, this next part of the sermon, I'm totally making up because I don't don't know if this happened. (laughs) But I imagine that at some point in all of this chaos, and, and we just went really fast through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? I I would imagine that at some point Jesus and the Apostle Paul stood at the railing of heaven and looked down and went, how did this happen? And Jesus turned to the Apostle Paul and said, I don't know how I could have been any clearer. I got them all together right at the end. I washed their stinking feet. (laughs) And I told them, this is an example. This is what you are to do for one another, okay? And then I looked them right in the eye and I said, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. How in the world did it come to this? The apostle Paul said, well, no offense, Jesus, but I actually wrote mine down, (laughs) sent it out, had copies made. You know what I told him? I said, you know, Jesus, I mean, that was good what you said, but what could be clearer than this? The only thing that counts The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And Peter walks up. He says, Jesus, I'm really embarrassed. I mean, you got a garden tomb. Have you seen what they built over the place where I'm buried? (laughs) They built a temple over my burial site. And Jesus, I'm telling you, I wrote it down too. I said this. I said, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. So how does that happen? How could something so clear become so complicated? How could the new movement of Jesus with a new command and a new ethic of love that was to serve as the filter for all of their decisions, how could something so pure, so grassroots, so one another oriented become so temple? And the reason is is because there is a little temple model in all of us. And 
our consciences have been shaped by it. What you fear, what you see as sin, what you think God condemns has been taught to you in such a way and to me in such a way that our conscience have been shaped by it and consequently, we continue to hold on to things that hold us back and hold the church back. You say, well, Andy, I, I don't know about me. I don't know if I, yeah, you. Let me give you some examples as we close today. Have you ever wondered how close to sin you could get without actually sinning? That's how temple model people think. Because you treat God like he's stupid. It's like, God, I want to know exactly where the sin is because, see, I'm not trying to get close to you. I'm trying to get close to sin. But I don't want to tick you off, you know. So, God, I want to know exactly. So people ask preachers and people like me all the time, do you think such and such is a sin? And I never answer that question. That's a bad question. Do you think such and such is a sin? Basically, I like to do such and such, but I don't want to sin. But I want to know exactly where the line is. How close to sin can I get without ticking God off? If you've ever had that thought, that's temple model thinking. Let me ask you this one. Do you feel guilty or has there ever been a time in your life, maybe you're in a time this time right now, have you ever felt guiltier about missing church, mass, or confession than you have about the way you treated someone at work? Have you ever felt guiltier about, oh, I miss church, I miss mass, you know, I miss confession. I felt guilty, but have you ever felt guiltier about any of that than you have about how you treated someone at work? That somehow in your thinking, those things take precedent over how you treat other people. If you've ever had that thought, if your conscience is wound up in that kind of thinking and feeling, that is temple model thinking. Here's one that I've gotten so many times over the years that it's sensitive, but I'll just throw it out there anywhere. Anyway, if you have ever feared for the eternal destiny of your child based on whether or not your child was baptized, temple model. Someone convinced you that putting water on the head of your baby or your child would determine where they spent eternity. And I understand that as a parent, you fear because no, you don't, no one loves anyone like we love our children. But someone has taught you something that if you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially what Jesus says about children, do you know what he says about children? He says, bring them to me, take a good look, and now become one. Temple model thinking. Here's one. When you failed morally, whatever that was, maybe you had an affair, maybe you're in an affair, maybe you had several affairs, or maybe for you it was you're not married or it was before you were married and you, you define morality any way you want. Today's not the day I'm gonna give you a Bible story on morality, but that time in your life when you would say based on your own you know, filter, based on your own sense of ethics and morality, that time that you failed morally with someone. Here's the question. Were you more concerned about what God would do to you than you were about what you did to the person you sinned with? Because if you were, that's temple thinking. Because in the temple model, the worshiper is always more concerned about themselves than other people. Here's another one. Do you believe there's a ritual, there's, there's some sort of ritual that makes you right with God and removes your responsibility to make restitution to the person that you've hurt or sinned against? Do you believe there's some kind of magic prayer, there's some kind of penance, there's some kind of go there, and if I do that consistently, and if I serve and you know, maybe become a scout leader or whatever it is, do you think there's some kind of thing that somehow will make you right with God and remove your responsibility to make things right with someone else? It's temple thinking. 
How about this one? Do other people's sins elicit feelings of superiority in you or compassion? Do other people's failures, is it sort of like, well, those people, well, those Republicans, well, of course, they're Democrats. Of course, they would do that, you know. Well, they're liberal. Well, they're conservative. Well, they're Presbyterian. Well, they're Catholic. Well, they're Baptists. Well, they're pagans. Well, you know, they're whatevers. Has, is there ever a moment in time when somehow other people's failings and other people's sins, however you define sin, makes you feel morally superior instead of breaking your heart? That somehow God, you know, it's like Jesus said, you know, the, the Pharisee who stood in the temple and said, God, I'm so glad I'm not like these other people because you hear my prayers and they're disgusting. They're disgusting you and they're disgusting to me and I hope they don't get, I don't get their cooties, God, because look at me, I'm such a pure moral person. Is there any of that in you? As I know, there is that in me. That's temple model pollution. It's that little bit of the wrong thing that has the potential to pollute and corrupt the entire thing. Do your beliefs and your theology ever get in the way of your love? That's temple. Do you have views to get in the way of loving an actual you? That's temple model thinking. It's in all of us. Our consciences are bound to it. Imagine if we were free from it. Imagine a world where every single believer in Jesus Christ got up every single day and recognized, God is fine with me. Now I must figure out how to be fine with other people so they can be fine with my Father in heaven. Because I think what fuels the temple model thinking in many of us is simply our failure to truly embrace the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that Jesus died for you. And as much as that's a theological category and as much as you may have prayed a prayer when you were a child, when this gets to your heart, here's what happens. The idea that Jesus died for you, you will begin to recognize that Jesus is for you. And once you understand that Jesus and his father are unequivocally for you, that there is no measure, there is no sin that puts you outside their love, that, that grace has no measure and grace has no limits. Once you settle into that and that gets to your heart, that becomes the context. That becomes the context and the God, love God has for you and other people becomes the context through which we understand the scriptures. It becomes the context through which we interpret the Old and New Testament. It goes right back to what Jesus said when he said, hey, it's real simple. You love God and you demonstrate your love for God by loving others. That's it. When you aren't sure what to do, you pause and ask, what does love require of you? When you aren't sure what to do, you simply pause and ask, what does love require of you? Because Jesus said, and the apostle Paul said, that the entire law hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. What if that characterized the church? What if that characterized you and me? What if God's love for us and for those around us began to inform our consciences and shape our behaviors? When that happens, as that happens, 
then and not until then, they will know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they will know that we are Christians by our love. Don't miss next week. Ladies, don't miss week five. If you're married, have your husbands on the front row. If you have a boyfriend, have him on the second row. Because our mission and our goal and the reason we're doing this series is to strip away the temple thinking from all of us so that we can once again engage on this thing that was brand new, a totally different way of approaching life within the context of a brand new covenant that said your sin is paid for. Now live a life that reflects the forgiveness of God as you mirror that in your forgiveness of the people around you. Don't miss. Next week, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for preserving this sacred text and for preserving these life-giving words that at the end of the day, it's as simple as loving you and loving the invisible God through loving the visible people around us. How simple. Father, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we could be the generation that at least moves the ball down the field. That perhaps we could be the generation that gets this writer, if not completely right. That our kids and our grandkids would see in us a form, a version of Christianity that truly in, in, incorporates and embraces the newness and that little by little, each of us individually and as a group of churches would leave behind those things that should have been left behind a long time ago. And Father, I pray that in your name, we would never, ever, ever hurt an individual, regardless of what they've done, what they believe, or what we believe. So give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. And give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.